Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission is to help anybody out there that's thinking of starting a business do just that. Equally, if you've started a business and are struggling, maybe you need a little bit of inspiration and knowledge. And we hope by interviewing some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and change makers that you'll get the knowledge you need to become the person you want and turn your business into that dream company. I personally have started 17 companies from scratch and have invested in over 65 startups. I left school at 15 with near zero education and was able to retire at 40. When I sat down and analyzed how I did it, I discovered a secret. It was all luck. So in each episode, I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, no matter what you're building, shipping or thinking, without luck, it ain't gonna work. Each week, I will discuss with my guests this theory and test it and see if luck is a skill as I feel it is and if it's possible to pass it on to the next generation of entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy our episode this week. My guest today is Adele Parks. Adele has been described as one of the UK's most popular fictional authors. She has now written 20 books. Her first book was published in the year 2000 and she shows no signs of slowing down. She sold over 3.5 million books worldwide and she'll tell us some stories about some of the feedback she's had, how she managed to do it or what motivated her to become an entrepreneur writer. Adele, thank you for joining us. Total pleasure, glad to be here. Well, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests this very simple question. What does success mean to you? Hmm, okay. Um, intellectual stimulation, feeling part of the world and being heard, I think are all really important things to being successful. For me, considering myself successful, and uh, yes, I'd be lying if I didn't say um, money. Not huge obscene amounts of money, but money enough to give you choices and protection. Choices and protection. That's very yeah. interesting. I like the point about being heard. That, that, as, a, as a writer, that's very interesting. Has that yeah, always been there? Yeah, it is. Because there's so many books are published all the time. You know, it's a very, very crowded market. And so if you happen to be lucky enough to be the one person there or one of the people that breaks through and gets heard, and now I'm now in a position where people will write to me and, and literally if you pull out paragraphs and say, oh, I printed that out on my fridge or I have that on my uh, dressing table. It's something I live by. You think, gosh, my words have literally resonated for that, you know, quite often for years and years because it might be an old book that come across. Um, and I think being heard in that way is super important. To me. Does being heard mean feedback? Do you mean people, or how do you Ooh, translate it? No, not necessarily. Sometimes I don't even like feedback. Ah. Um, uh, I think it's not, so I, for a writer, it's very easy to know if you're heard or not because we know how many books we sell, we know how many library loans we've got. So we have an idea of how many people we're actually speaking to. I suppose feedback means that's the people I've touched, that's the people who have heard me, which I suppose there are two different levels there. But obviously, you know, I've sold three and a half million copies in the UK. I haven't had three and a half million people write to me to tell me something I said was profound and interesting to them. So you can't assume that everybody who's going to read will write back and give you feedback. Um, but I know that my voice is out there, my ideas are out there. I have a legacy, I suppose. Mm. Oh, you should be very proud. I am. Um, I'm actually doing this podcast to, in a similar way to, to be heard. And I actually find that even if I get one or two people that have listened to a podcast from a, an insight from a guest like yourself and got benefit from it, it makes it all worth it. So, yeah, totally. I, I get your point as well about the commercialization side. I think in publishing, it feels to me like it's, it's actually very hard to make money in, in publishing. Is that true? I think that is true. I mean, um, well, this is from memory, so it might not be exactly correct, but I think the average writer's salary is something like £16,000 per year. So the vast majority of writers are not writers alone. They're, they're quite often teachers or, or, or anything. They could be, you know, nurses, doctors, they could be anything. 
Um, so to make a full-time living out of writing is, is already unusual. I think it's only a small percentage of us. Um, and actually, besides what the authors make, there's not much slack for the booksellers, so the retailers, the independents. There's not much slack for the publishers. Um, when it's, you know, we... So there used to be this thing called the Network Agreement, which meant, uh, it was up to about 20 years ago, books could only be sold for the price that it said on the back of the book. They weren't discounted. And I remember at university thinking books were really expensive because I either got them secondhand or I paid full price if I bought them in a shop. Where now I think we all expect books to be discounted all the time. In fact, we actually expect nearly everything to be discounted all the time. But books are something people resent paying full price for. And I've been I've been at events where I've sort of, you know, slogged my guts out, talked for hours, given workshops, whatever it might be, and afterwards they say to me, Oh, that's a lovely pet, but I'm gonna buy it on whatever channel, you can fill in the gaps, because it'll be cheaper than if I buy it here. Um, and so they don't buy the independent bookseller that you maybe with because it will be a full price product there. So, you know, your market variables in publishing and as a writer are just as important as they are if you're selling lots of other products. It's not all about the art, oddly, which is very much about commercialism too. There's an interesting thing there about proving the value of the book before someone's bought it and then you know, once they've got it, I'm sure it didn't, they never, if you ask them, what do they remember about the book? They'll never say the price. <laughs> no, exactly. No one ever says how much. You're so right. That's a bit like a wedding day. You know how people on wedding days, you're obsessed with budgets beforehand. Yeah. And then afterwards, you, you've always got another budget. Yeah. And afterwards, you sort of spend way more. That's true. And cares. That's actually so very I true. I can't, I can't remember what I spent on my wedding. I, I just, I just remember thinking it was a lot, but you know, that's true. Yeah. That's, 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 and that's very great, true. And it was fine. Do, do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? How do you view your, your trade? I do to many, in many extent, uh, to, I do to a large extent because nobody in my family was a writer or had any involvement in the publishing world. So me breaking into writing and publishing was quite entrepreneurial for my environment. So I'm from the northeast of England. My dad worked for ICI, which at the time, everybody's dad worked for ICI. My mom had jobs that kind of fitted around the kids, including, you know, packing tea bags at Tetley's. We were not a writery, artsy family. We had, I had no reason to believe I could crack into this very exclusive club, or that's how I viewed it. Um, so, I think my own determination and my own self-belief is something I have in common with other entrepreneurs. Um, as my career has progressed, I've been writing for 20 years, I've written 20 novels, but I've also written endless articles and short stories, a couple of uh, radio plays. Um, so I have treated my art as a business. I quite often look at opportunities. I, I've even still written the occasional advert, not the way I used to when I worked in advertising, but um, more as a kind of a, a linear storyline. And I look at different projects and think how they will work for my brand and for my business. So all of that is very entrepreneurial, I think. Uh, the buck stops with me is the other thing. You know, I create this book. So, um, and if, if it's successful, a lot of people are help help me in that being successful in that process. Obviously, my publishers and the marketeers and the distributors and librarians and there are hundreds of people involved. But in the end, if I don't write a decent book, if there isn't a strong product to start with, it hasn't got a hope in hell anyhow. So I think that's the same. Um, I think the difference between me and a normal entrepreneur, I guess, is I didn't financially invest in becoming a writer. I kept my day job all the way along until I had a really quite decent um, advance, which allowed me, in fact, it was three times my annual salary, so I was able to give up the day job. Um, so my risk was all emotional risk, where I think most entrepreneurs, they have financial risk and emotional risk, actually. Mm. But mine was all um, emotional risk. I think the other thing is my concept of Every time I write a book, obviously the concept has to be new and I have to come up with something fresh and exciting, the way entrepreneurs often do. But being 
being a novelist is not a new concept. You know, there is a path out there. Um, there are there are, there are structures like publishing houses to help you become a novelist. So I think I've I've got some things in common and some things are not. Um, also, entrepreneur always strikes me as very new, and I now feel quite long in the tooth, twenty years into it. Um, so I think that I would strongly call myself a business person. I, I always see myself as that. Possibly even before I see myself as an artist, mm. they're, they're hand in hand. Mm. Well, that's it. I often have this debate um, with, with friends that the artists are entrepreneurs. I think they are too. I, I definitely think you're an entrepreneur. That's why I have you on this show. I, I totally think you're, you're a different type of profile, perhaps to, let's call it the, the Mark Zuckerberg entrepreneur, who's the textile entrepreneur. I, I actually believe there's eight different types of entrepreneurs. I've, I've done a whole thing on this, but you're definitely one of them. I think it's interesting when you break down the emotional risk versus you know, having a day job. And, and I guess your skill set allows you to do both. And I bet doing both actually at some point helps you stay sane. There's kind of a balancing act there. Well, yes, it would have done, except I didn't do both. I only did both till I, so I wrote Claim Away while I had a day job. And then I pitched it to my agent, an, an agent, wasn't my agent at that time. And when he took it on and when he sold it, I kept the day job until I was actually launched. And once I was launched, I realized that becoming a writer, if I really wanted to do it properly, um, that would become my day job. And so I gave up the the old day job, which, you know what, I still hanker after a little bit. I hanker after the water cooler moments, as I describe them. You know, that thing of just asking, did you watch Game of Thrones on the TV last night? What do you think? Um, I don't have that. Mm. Um, and lots of entrepreneurs who are startups and they work on their own, I think mm. that's possibly what hits a lot of us, mm. how lonely it can be. I totally um, agree. I, th- I think that's our, our biggest challenge, actually. Yep. And so maybe retrospectively, I would have kept the day job for longer. Mm. But my day job at that point, I worked for Accenture, which is a huge management consultancy, as I'm sure all you listeners know. Um, and... The issue was, is I, I, it was a huge job. I looked after the advertising for the consultancy in Europe, Middle East, Africa, and India. I was always on an airplane. Um, it wouldn't have been fair to my boss, my team, or myself to try and have both things running mm. for any length of time. Mm. So, so playing away, you launched in 2000, and basically that did well enough that you felt you could quit your day job. That's how you felt. That's how yeah. it played out. Right. And then, well, actually, if I'm honest, I quit my job the week, about a month before it was launched. Okay, so, so, so you just I had... I was going to do well. Right, you had belief in yourself. I, I find it interesting. I mean, did, did Game Over, the second book that came out in 2001, was, was, did that have an effect on your writing because of that change of lifestyle? Uh, well, I wrote that one in three months because I was so used to being a management consultant for 14 hour a day that I just bashed this book out. And everyone talks about the second book syndrome or the second album syndrome or whatever. And because Playing Away had been a huge success, by that point it sold in America and Germany and I had big contracts everywhere. And so financially I knew I was safe. And also I was at an age where I thought I'd start a family. And that literally, that's what happened. I had the, I wrote the book and I took three months. I handed it in, expecting edits and all that sort of thing. And my editor just said, yeah, no, it's fine. We'll have it as his. And right. I remember thinking, well, well, what will I do now? Oh, I'll have a baby. Which, looking back again, perhaps not. should have given it a little bit more thought and planning and the whole process. You don't when you're that young. And I just, mm. then I just got pregnant and I had my son. Right. And, um, and so it all kind of worked out rather dreamily, actually, that all worked out nicely because I was thinking about this literally the other day I was reading a book about a woman who was struggling with her maternity leave struggling with giving up a big job to go on maternity leave really wanted to be with her baby but missed the big job and I thought okay I have my challenges having my son and my big job but I've never had to give anything up I've always had to some extent, a balance or a juggling act. It might not be a balance, which is a juggling act. Mm. But I had both things, which I think is one of my extremely, extremely lucky things about my career. Mm. Yeah, having both, I mean, I, I, I don't hear that very often. I mean, I've got a two and a half year old, so I, I literally had to somewhat stop being an entrepreneur so I could spend time with him. 
even now doing his podcast because we're all locked down working from home he's in his bedroom right now with his mother i can hear him saying daddy come and play you know like getting that balance is so hard and when i look at your history you know you basically produced a successful book every year since 2000 you know and and so and i read on your website you work nine to five now you have a very strong discipline but how have you managed to balance that all out um i've always had the strong discipline but the timings have been different. So when my son was born, that was just about, by then I had written the first two, so Playing Away was written and launched, uh, Game Over was written, but it launched, so Conrad was born in the November, and then the second book was launched in February, about that, I might have that wrong. And at the same time, I was writing book three. So I had a launch, a tiny baby, and, I'm glad you're a dad because I'm going to go into some detail here that you might, everyone might not love. But I remember being on launch and having sore boobs and being in Waterstones in Piccadilly, squeezing milk down the loo. Oh, God. Thinking, this is the worst. I should be either at home feeding my baby or at least have thought on to keep this milk because it's so hard to get baby milk. Right, right. And, um, and, and I, what am I doing? Why am I pushing myself this hard? But, and actually I only have one child and I know that a lot of other authors who have been extremely successful, but they haven't managed to produce one book a year and have two or three children. I don't think it is that easy, but with one, all I've ever done is work around him. So every time he fell asleep, I worked. When he was little, um, I got a nanny share and three days a week. And the nanny came to our house and I moved out and, and wrote in libraries and cafes and that sort of thing. I write a lot when he's asleep. I used to, I always, when then he was at school age, I would write while he was uh, at school, but not when he was at home. There was a part of this as well where I was a single mom because me and my son's dad split up when he was only 10 months. So I look back and I think, oh my God, so I had a, Something obviously gave, you see. I look back now with many years hindsight and think, oh, okay, maybe I could keep the job and the baby, but not the husband, because you just can't maybe put everything in, uh, you know, manage everything. And then I met someone else and I remarried, and, and he's an amazing father and has been super supportive. And he works from home, which is another huge help in balancing. Uh, our lives because right now if the doorbell goes in my house I won't answer it and he will and Mm. that will be fine Mm. um or when Conrad was younger if the baby needed some attention Jim would deal with it rather than me Mm. um but I have had times I remember an article I was being interviewed by I think with the Guardian and I really wanted to impress and I thought gosh if they could really see me now because I had a baby in a high chair with a lolly in his mouth like I literally was just holding this lolly in my mouth to keep him quiet and it was all I could do because I needed to do the interview and I needed to look after my son and I was on my own. So mm. I did it. I, I think it's amazing that, I mean, I, I, I've been a full-time parent with my wife since our son was born two and a half years ago. Um, we both now, of course, work from home, but I, I, I've still found it incredibly hard. Frankly, instead of when my son sleeps, I, uh, I work. When my son sleeps, I need to sleep because you now he's up till midnight and wakes up at five. I don't know how he does it. And he's like an energizer bunny, um, which for anyone in America okay, might not yeah, know. Yeah, but I suppose the other thing is um, because... I was single by the time I was 10 months. Really, honestly, I needed to pay bills. Right. So, you know, I stayed up because there was a mortgage to pay. I wanted to buy my husband, my first husband, out of the house so that our son could stay in the same mm. house. Um, I, I had to prove my worth to my publishers because the mm. thing with being uh, writer's contracts are normally one or two book deals. I've always had two, two or more. I've been very lucky. But in those days, I had two book deals. Mm. So I knew as soon as I handed in Game Over, I was actually out of contract. So I needed to make the third book impressive enough and to mm. get another contract mm. for me to get mortgage to just keep right. going. Right. So I guess I just didn't have much choice. And I think we all do that as entrepreneurs. We've all, we've all had that moment where we go, well, well actually, my choice is there's no choice. Mm. Um, you know, you find a way around it. Actually... And going back to your point about discipline, sure. I, that came from my old jobs. Mm. I, came, I learned discipline at Accenture a hundred times over, deadlines and 
mm. you know, long hours and all that sort of stuff. And but it must go, it must go further back than that. What, what did your parents do? Uh, yeah, my parents are definitely both very working people. Like, as I say, my dad worked for ICI and my mum had jobs around the kids, but they work hard. They, they rarely sit around, even now, like, even in, even in lockdown, they're like, oh, I've cut the grass today. And like, oh, well, I've cut any grass left. Often, you know, um, oh, I've scrubbed this water, this cupboard or something. They're all oh, good, you know. They're very busy people. Um, we were given a, a huge sense of, of work ethic, and there wasn't a lot of money slushing around. So it, we were definitely taught to stand on our own two feet. I always tease my dad about the story, but it is actually true. So I'll share it. It's a funny one. The day before my finals started, I was the first person in my family. To go to university so it was a huge deal and I was super supportive but the day before my final started my dad rang me you know in those days you had to kind of go and use a communal phone and all these things and I got I got to the phone and I was thinking oh how nice he's ringing me to say good luck and he said oh you know Pat I'm just ringing to say it doesn't really matter how the exams go this over the next month I'm like oh dad thanks but not another breast farthing like not giving you another penny so it doesn't matter it's to you but you're on your own. Right. <laughs> it's not helpful the day before the exams, but quite interesting, actually, because it showed me and has taught me all my life. There's no slack. There is, right. you know, and that's fine. And to be fair, I think if I had ever been destitute, they would have helped me out, but, you know... It's, it's a, I think it's a really interesting uh, point, though, and I want I want the listeners out there to pick up on, on, on this, which I, I can also resonate with, which is sometimes if you've got too many options and you've got too many choices, then you don't follow through on the painful things because we're humans, right? So we default sometimes to the easiest route. Mm-hmm. And I think what your story is highlighting is that, you know, you had to push through. And a lot of people out there want to be writers, but they're not, they don't necessarily have the same motivator, maybe, that you had. Um, and so, you know, they think it's, they can blame it on not having the right publisher or not having enough um, skill, uh, but often it is about grit, isn't it? It is. And actually, you'd be hard pushed to find a writer that blends it on themselves and says, I wasn't good enough. Oh, yeah. they need I don't know enough writers. writers. You, you might they be right. I'm a publisher. But in fact, a couple of things, and I am very harsh on myself. I edit, edit, edit all the time. Um, I'm possibly my harshest critic. I, uh, I couldn't not write. So even when I had my other jobs, I was always writing all the time. And the big leap for me, I think, was in my 20s, we had, very sadly, a number of deaths in our family. And some of them, you might think, were expected because they were older people, but some of them were were genuinely shocking. And they were people younger than I was at the time. And I'm friends and close family, if I'm honest, but a number. And one was a suicide and one was a murder. So these were very very shocking and difficult things to deal with in my 20s and I always used writing as a way of processing everything and escaping because actually playing away is a romantic comedy it's literally cut off and debut books are very close to the knuckle and very similar to your own experiences and mine absolutely wasn't I wrote it as an escape mechanism from the very difficult things I was going through and that's how I've always used reading and writing. Um, so yes, I use. I yes, I have had to push through, and yet I've always felt I was also being pulled through because there's something in me that just wants to get to the other side. Mm. I, lo- I, you know, I do love what I do. Mm. How how do you parent today? I mean, just going on your own experience there, where you know, like you say, no slack. And I think it's good training for entrepreneurs not to that. How do you how do you do it today? So my son is now nineteen, so he's you know he's just had two week, two terms at university and then had to come home. You can imagine like I can't be living worse really than having all that freedom, you know, and then suddenly come home. So he's come home and I'm very like you're nineteen. That's up to you. You're a man. Sort it out. So if you want to do your dialing lessons, that well, we'll be dialing now, will it? I suddenly right. time travelled. If you uh, want no, to, still, there's still a uh, dial-in concept, you know. You, and if you don't, I am not going to stand over you and make you do it. I think we, so we live in Surrey, which is known for being quite, um, I hope I'm not offending everyone in Surrey, I probably am, but it's quite a pushy parent area. 
And I think I was seen as relatively relaxed. And yet I thought, oh my gosh, my childhood, no childhood in comparison to my childhood, which was basically messing around in muddy puddles and playing on my bike. Um, and I had a great childhood to that. I wasn't, I wasn't really pushed at all. I, I came from within. Where, interestingly, with my son, he self-motivates spasmodically and suits himself. And I realized that he's his own being and all my great lessons are literally the most boring things he's ever heard hmm. because I'm his mother. Right. Um, and so I kind of lean into it. And you know what? He's, he's a joy and he does really well. And he has all the right values as far as I'm concerned. He's kind, he's funny, and he's hardworking. So hmm. I think he'd be okay, hmm. irrespective of kind of academic achievement. And sometimes that really works out for him and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I think that's okay. So when he was doing his exams, you didn't uh, text him, probably more, more appropriate, and say, good luck, doesn't matter if you fail or not, but if you do, it's all, all your own problem. You, d- you didn't send that text? No, because I think, I think that's like a slightly different thing for him. He has grown up with my now wealth. You know, I mean, I'm not like dripping in it, but we're comfortable. And I think that is slightly different to mine and my husband's. Um, experiences though. I mean, I think I was kind of middling and my husband was like church mass poor. And so we both kind of are very much self-starters because that was important. I think in the back of my son's mind, he's thinking, I'm an only child and you are on this. I'm, I'm never going to, I'm never going to And I keep saying to him, I'm going to live a really long time and care how expensive. Oh. <laughs> you need to get wow. out on your own, you know. But um, there's a lot of humour, I think, to parenting. There has to be. Right. Um, and they become that you'll know already. Your son is his own person. Mm. No matter what you thought he was going to be, mm. no matter what you and your wife are, he is his own unique person. And, and that's the joy of actually bringing a, a human into the world to watch that unfold. Yeah. So I, I couldn't agree more. I'm uh, very excited about your new book coming out. Of course, I love the title because I've got a podcast called uh, Luck, Having Luck in It, but Just My Luck, very exciting. comes out on the 14th of May, right? Yes. So tell us a little bit about this and the inspiration behind it. Okay, so the the plot is um, really simple kind of uh, plot to get head driver, really. Three couples, known each other since um, their firstborns, were the tiny babies and they all met at a postnatal baby group which i'm sure you joined and i'm sure you made good friends with people and, and it's a quite a different bond when you're young and vulnerable and you're learning this whole new world of being a parent you quite often very strongly bond with the other people that you meet at that time so there's three couples and they've known each other forever and we meet them when their eldest kids are all 15 years old and through those 15 years they've done plenty of things together they go on holidays together and they have supper together and they do bonfire night and firework night, uh, sorry, bonfire night and New Year's Eve and all those things together. The one kind of interesting, quirky thing is every week they buy lottery tickets. And this comes from a throwback when they couldn't get babysitters and they used to stay in and have supper together and it was some kind of form of entertainment. They buy a lottery ticket, they use the same numbers. Anyway, when we meet them when the kids are 15, um, two of the three couples have financially kind of moved on a bit and are a bit better off than one of the couples. And they sort of turn around and say, look, we've outgrown it and it's a bit naff and we don't want to do the lottery anymore. And at that point, all hell breaks out. All the kind of little gripes that they have against each other and all the kind of little underlying things that they've all been ignoring suddenly flare up and they have a huge row at one dinner party. And two of the couples throw in the towel and say, we don't want to do the syndicate anymore. And the third couple carry on and buy the ticket with the same numbers and the very next week they win 18 million pounds. Now legally, the that one couple are the only people that have that money, it's their money. But morally, where do you stand? And is this a moment to make friends? And how much are you prepared to make friends? Are you prepared to give six million to each couple to be friends? Or do you really think I'm gonna rub their noses in it? And of course, from the other side, how far will the other couples go? And it's a domestic noir, it gets quite dark, it's quite twisty. Um, they're pretty, the two couples that have been left out, financially left out in the cold, become quite brutal. They, they, it questions what can money buy and what should it buy and what should it definitely not buy. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's quite a lot of fun as well as having this dark side. I think a lot of people are going to wonder what they would do with 18 million when they read it. And then 
see it unfold and I wonder if they ever want to win 18 million anyhow. Mm. Um, because winning it is very different to earning it um, and people's reactions to winners are very different. And the whole concept came out of um, a 50th birthday party, a friend of mine, big reunion, saw an old mate of mine, a huge respect for, like him a lot. And they said, what are you doing now? And he said, oh, I'm the financial director at Camelot. And I'm the guy who signs the checks and hands them over, you know, those huge, big checks. And, um, and he said, you know, it's really, and he said, oh, tell me some stories, which I always do. And he told me the story that if somebody wins massively, one of the very good things about the lottery is they protect you and give you guidance about sort of maybe where you want to live or how you should treat your friends or do you want to go public with this. But they also suggest or offer, do you want security for your children? And he just dropped that into conversation. And I was like, sorry, so you've just been handed this check for like 18 million, imagine. And then in the moment of euphoria, you're kind of reminded your kids are now under a, a new threat that you've never ever imagined. Mm. And I thought in there was a domestic noir that could, a psychological thriller that could get quite exciting. Um, so yeah, that's where it came from. I I, uh, I think it is fascinating. I've been lucky enough to work with a few um, billionaires in China, and you know what always struck me was how accessible they were. And you know this is fear. I just don't. I'm thinking of one in particular who you know would basically just walk the streets with no security. I guess you have to go one way or the other, don't you? You know, if you've got security yeah. guards, then people kind of know hey, it's probably someone I should um, I should go after. Yeah, and I guess with something like the lottery, the issues of you take um, the you know you, you take publicity or not, because obviously if you can keep quiet and nobody else knows that this is the case, then you can probably you're probably in a much safer place. But in the story that the husband and wife have different views on whether they should take publicity or not. Anyway, it was a really good fun book to write. Um, I'm not particularly um, bothered about materialistic stuff. I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and say that, but I'm not. I mean, I do most of my shopping at TK Maxx. I'm proud of it. And um, But it was really hilarious and good fun going into exquisite shops. And my husband and I would pick up a T-shirt and go, 900 quid, uh. 900 quid. Even if I had 18 million, I wouldn't spend 900 quid on a T-shirt. Mm. So it was quite funny, because obviously some people must be out there spending 900 mm. quid on a T-shirt. They couldn't sell them. Mm. I think I've done it once. I think I think I like to experience everything kind of once is my my idea. But I, I know I know exactly what you mean. I think that's another trait of an entrepreneur in some respects. It's 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 really about the journey, isn't it? The actual yeah. physical spending piece can be a burden, to be honest. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, it's it's not. Do you so having written a book, you know, involving luck and and what what do you think about luck? Do you think how do you view it? Has has luck played a role in your life or or, or bad okay. luck for that matter? Here's a thing that I'm sure you must have heard on this podcast hundreds of times, but it's not original. Um, it's the old, I believe, the harder you work, the luckier you get. It's just as simple as that. You've never lost until you give up. You've never failed until you give up. Um, especially in writing. No one can tell you it's done until you decide you're done. So I, I think we differ on this one because I don't really believe a lot has come to me easily. I think I grafted. Um, in fact, if anything, I'm, again, superstitious nonsense. But I don't know if you know that old rhyme about the day your child is born. And mm. it's like, Monday's child is this, Tuesday's child is this. And they're all great. All of them. It's like, Monday's child is Thursday. Oh, Tuesday's yeah. I know, I know now, now what you mean. Yep. All yep. good. Except for Wednesday. And it's like, Wednesday's child is full of woe. No spawn on a Wednesday. <laughs> oh. Every time anything goes wrong, everyone's like, well, now I'm going to, have to check what day I'm born on. I'm sure my yeah, listeners will be yeah. doing exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, but, I, but also it's the only bad one. And, um, and I don't think I've had that many easy breaks. In fact, my agent is hilarious. He's always saying, God, if, you know, if you, if you believed in this, adapt, you're like, there's a number of signs for this not to happen. And I usually refuse to look at the signs that tell me things shouldn't happen. Mm. And if I have some bad luck and... You know, I mentioned how I started writing and I started writing in reaction to terrible luck for our family, you know, really awful life and death situations. So after that, you can only react to things. So that's why I believe you make your own luck because 
you can choose how to react to something. Um, a lot of people, I think, would have folded and they would never have done anything productive or great with the, that, those terrible emotions. And I thought I owed the people I'd lost to live better and to work harder and to, make, to, to live what they couldn't live. So I guess I don't really believe so much in luck. That said, tell you what I think is lucky, being born in the Western world with all the choices we have and everything that's, you know, that, that piece of fate that decides where you're going to be born um, is enormous. And I think that must put me in a, a very privileged position. Um, irrespective of where I was born within the Western world or who I was born to or any of that, I've been born with all my senses, all my limbs, um, in a free country where women are allowed to be educated. Hey, and and a skill for writing, I would add. Sorry? And a skill for writing, I would add. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that, is a, that is a talent. That's really lucky. I don't know how that happens. I mean, I'm, it's the only talent I've got. That and I can decorate houses. I can't, I'm not musical. I, I can't sing. I'm a lousy sports person. I have nothing else going for me, trust me. So, you know, I cha- channeled it. Um, but yeah, I think, so I guess the very, I'm a bit mixed up on it, aren't I? But I do well, that's why I like talking about it. And I like talking about it with successful people because, you know, you're right. I have heard uh, some of your points before. And I think, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get uh, is, is one of those sayings that I kind of want to, get rid of because what what, it, what what my feeling on it is is that a lot of people then misunderstand that that they have to work hard to be successful and actually most of the time being successful is about perseverance not working hard it's about being in the right place at the right time not working hard and in fact there are cases i've seen where you know let's take someone that's you know a, a builder the harder he works he might you know more injuries he might have or the harder work the sicker people get a really good point because I think the harder you work, the lucky you get is true. But I think there's a lot of people that work really, really, really hard and still not lucky. Right. It's just, you know, that, things don't that, break see, them. Or, that's, exact, so, that's exactly right. Um, that, that's that's good point, yes. Yeah. So I think for me, I remember talking to Giovanna Fletcher, and she was really heavily pregnant with her second baby at the time. She's a friend of mine. And I said, well, why did you say yes to this? We were both on a panel. I was like, you know, she said, I say yes to everything. Just say yes. Wow. So some of them are rubbish and some of them are good, um, but you never know where they lead. And I thought, oh, I'm much more picky than that. And then I thought, maybe I'll try her way for a year. Hmm. So I gave it a go. For a year, I just said yes, and I went to some really drossy, rubbish events that I probably would have avoided. And I also went to some things that led to other things that I wasn't expecting that I might have ruled out. So I think that's what I mean by hard you work. Mm. Um, and obviously, if you don't finish your book, you're not going to get lucky. You know, mm. you've got to finish your book. Mm. And that's quite hard work. Mm. And then, you know, as soon as you finish, I quite often start the next one the same day as I finish one, which is insane. I understand that is insane. But as I also point out, I like doing it. So. Mm. No, I, I think there's so many people probably listening right now that love the idea of writing a book and being successful, selling 3.5 million copies as you have done and, and, and achieving what you have achieved. And, you know, I, I, I hate the idea of just saying, well, you just need to get lucky, you know, like, you know, but the harder you work, the luckier you get. I, I, I kind of feel like there's something else there. And you've touched on it just then, which is why are some people lucky and some people aren't? It can't just be talent. Because there's a lot of talented writers, aren't there, that aren't, that aren't noticed, that don't make it okay. a lot. I think, so I, think, I don't think there's one answer to it because I think there is a level of luck involved and at the right place at the right time. And I've seen other writers that I think maybe not even that good, and then they go stratosphere. I think how did that happen? Then right. you know what did they do? And it might have been well they came out and it was a heat wave and everybody bought from. Uh, you know, wanted to take a book to the park, or I've had launches that have been snowed off, and you think, right, well, I can't, I can't get around to launch. I can't, I can't do anything. You know, um, but you, it's more about that sort of if something knocks you back, keeping going and not taking that as the final answer. I think it's possibly that's where the luck is, because if you present yourself a thousand times. 
the law of nature, the odds are you're going to get a lucky break. If you present yourself five times, you might not get that lucky break. So I think that's when the hard work comes in because actually on the 999th time, you might think, sod it, I'm tired, I've done. But if you don't and you keep going, then you might find that's the day you get lucky. Yeah. And I have, I mean, also, I don't think it's really just about my talent. It's a lot of it's about the talent of the people I'm surrounded by. Um, I think I've been very lucky in my personal life. I think meeting Jim, somebody who is prepared to support me, which uh, very sexist as it sounds, isn't always the case that men want to support women in their careers. It, it is an inversion to an extent. It shouldn't be, but it still is. Um, and he has literally no problem going, yep, we'll do that. That's how it's going to work. And he also has a sort of skill set that very much um, kind of gives mine a bit more oomph. So he will work out technically a lot of things that I have the vision for. He will sort of go, oh, you know how we should approach that. So I think that's part of it for me. I wouldn't like to say I've done it all on my own graph without any luck. Um, and I wouldn't like to say it's all down to luck because I think I would be misleading people that are going to have a quite a hard slog if any entrepreneur is going to have a hard slog. I think that's why I love the premise of your book as well, because I think there's another element to add, which is sometimes you can get lucky and win the lottery. Uh, and that might not be lucky. You might think it is. And equally, I think yeah. bad luck, similar. You think you've had bad luck? Like you're saying about your parents and when you were younger, I'm sure you're like, why can't I just have parents that buy me a car and buy me a house? And, you know, but later in life, when you've built all these things for yourself, there's so much more, uh, such a bigger sense of achievement. Yes. And also in fairness, the area I came from, nobody had a car or we didn't, I certainly didn't feel as I was losing out. And I knew I had, see, there's another thing. I know I had very supportive parents. My father is a, um, a father of two girls. My mum just adored us and thought everything we did, like, if we scratched our heads, she'd go, that's brilliant, it's clearly not, it's just a person scratching their head. So she was a little bit like, you know, we couldn't go wrong. Whereas my dad was a bit stricter, and he would sort of say, you know, well, what are you trying to achieve, and what are you going to do with that? And, oh, you're quitting now, are you? That was a big thing in our house. Oh, you're quitting now. So you kind of felt galvanised, like, no, no, I'm not quitting, I see the challenge there. And actually, he always said, you can do anything, you can achieve anything. He was an engineer, and he thought, he used to say to me, oh, why don't you be an engineer? He was not one of those dads that thought those kind of girl things and boy things. He was, you know, is very supportive still. Um, so I think between them, I had this mom who was absolutely devoted and sort of said, oh, you can do anything because you're you, which she would have said if I literally could do nothing. And there was my dad sort of going, well, you can do anything if you try. So I had these, this very good kind of combo, I think. Do you think there was a big break in business for you in the, in, in the publishing world? Oh, I think, um, so I approached, and this is a piece of luck in that way. So I approached this agent, Johnny Galler, who I had found literally through the big book called The Artist's Handbook. Um, and it comes out annually. I write an artist's handbook, it's a list of all the agents, etc. And I was literally going through it and thinking, oh, that's kind of in my genre, that might be quite interesting, oh, that's a big agency, that might be quite interesting, but very much with a business head-on kind of filtering it. And at the same time, a friend of mine read an article about this chap, Johnny Gala, and sent me the article saying, he looks like he could be your friend, by which she meant he didn't look scary, which if you're not in publishing, you think it's a feminist situation, you think it was scary. He had a, and he just seemed nice just seems so, you know, on his picture. She's like, try it. And I went back and looked at my list and I thought, oh, Curtis Brown, which is his agency, the way he's from, is on my list. Okay, I'll try him first. And then we clicked and we worked really well together. And he now is the CEO of his agency. And at that time, he was like fresh, young, rooting for an agent. So we've kind of grown up together. I think finding Johnny was a bit of luck, actually. Mm. I'm not sure any other agent would have placed me quite he's very respected and so I kind of got the halo effect from his achievements as well as him getting the halo effect of my achievements and we, we buoyed each other up over the last 20 years well that's that's a it's lovely when it works out that way isn't it and you, yeah. you find that uh, natural one plus one equals 11 is kind of how I see it yeah, that's amazing. It's a life partner oh, well, one I side and I also argue quite a lot too 
Oh yeah, I'm sure. Well, of course, it's like a relationship. Nothing's ever perfect, <laughs> isn't like, it? I always think he's my he's my work husband. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I look at your history and I kind of think to myself, you know, when I look at your um, last nineteen books and the new one, the twentieth book, to me, it's also like you've done twenty startups there. Because every time you launch a book, it may or may not work, right? You just Correct. don't. And that must Correct. be quite scary. Terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And there's n- there's very little author loyalty for female and oddly i think this is a male female thing i think men who read fewer books but they have particular authors they will always always go back to where women read a lot of books so they might lose track not out of any malice or already whatever but they might lose track of an author that thought oh that was really good last year they won't think oh, can't wait for her to come out again next year some do but only a small percentage so each time you're kind of representing yourself, reminding people of who you are and what you've got to say. And, and also I've written in different genres. I've taken risks. I've gone from romantic comedy to historical to psychological thrillers. You know, I, so I'm asking my readers who might be very like wedded to romantic comedies. I have to say to them, oh, you know, come with me, try this genre. So I'm asking a lot from my consumer, actually. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like selling, I don't know, selling a car to your consumer and then go, oh, would you like to try a motorbike now? So, what what, what uh, makes know, you take that chance? Why not stick to the same genre? What, what you know? What, oh, what? I think I'd get bored. So it's just, I, were you not scared of failure, though, when you changed like that? Was Yeah, my publishers were probably very, I mean, they were very supportive, but they must have been nervous, and they probably had right to be nervous. It was quite... Um, a huge leap for me but in both cases when I each time I change I've had um the support of I've pitched the idea and they've loved the idea and thought well she probably can write it but, and also I think if a writer is committed to a story there's no point making them write something else because it, it won't be very good where they they write what they love I certainly write what I love so me changing genres has happened it's, it seems to have worked um I, at the moment, happen to be on trend because psychological thrillers are a thing right now. Um, but when I went into historical, everyone was like, why, why are you doing that? That's just not the thing at the moment. But I had some stories I wanted to write about World War I, and, and I did, and they sold. And, and I've been very lucky. All of my books have been um, uh, bestsellers. And, you know, again, you see how you thought, I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate that it's all worked out well. So, yeah. Oh, fascinating. Well, I'm getting loads of questions from people too, so I, I kind of feel like I, I, I'm going to lose you soon. I, I, I want to maybe wrap up. So, so I'll, I'll wrap up with a, a, one question I want to ask, and there may be a couple of questions from listeners. But um, so, if, if you went back to your younger self and gave some advice, what would it be? And then finally, if your uh, life is a book, what chapter are you currently on? Okay, they're quite quick ones, very easy. Um, I would tell my younger self to work just as hard, which is interesting because. I sometimes say to my son, oh, don't work so hard, you know, you don't want to be a workaholic like your mother. Um, but truthfully, it worked out for me, and I don't want him to be a workaholic because I feel I've taken that bullet for my family and he can have a bit of an easier time. Um, I would perhaps tell myself to worry less because it all works out, but maybe it wouldn't work out if I didn't, if I didn't have concerns. So I think, because I'm very happy where I am, I would have to tell my younger self to just carry on and be who she is. I would probably tell her to exercise while she was really lazy. Uh. Uh, she's really lazy. And um, and I'm not lazy now, so, you know, I would tell her to get benefits earlier. And I think if I was a book, I'm halfway. I mean, I'm halfway. There's still a lot I want to achieve. Um, I don't know if I'll write 20 more books. I might. I, in fact, the, the, the reason I have to leave you, because this is amazing to talk to you, but the reason I have to leave you is the next call is about a film deal. That, that would be nice. That hasn't happened yet, but one day it might, and the next call is about that. Um, I would like to, to try and put something on a, a theatre. I think there's a, a lot more I can do yet, and I'm excited about I'm going to have to do it faster, though, aren't I? Because obviously I'm already 50, so I'm unlikely to get to like 100. <laughs> well, I've got so many questions from, from listeners. Um, so maybe um, we can also come back to you another time and get some of these yeah, answers. Of I'll post them. I think people are just fascinated by your story. But you know, some people have got the obvious question, if I wanted to write a book, what steps do you suggest to get it out there into the world? Okay. Um, for a novel, you need an agent. Agents are basically the gatekeepers to the publishing house. That book I mentioned, The Writer's Novel's Handbook, is still an annual book. You can obviously do it online as well. That gives you all the information on, on how to structure um a proposal 
Also on my website, if you go to contact me, there are uh, there's this little section where there are 10 tips on how to get your book done and then what to do with it because it is a very frequently asked question and it's, it's a sensible one. You can also self-publish nowadays. Um, it's a very crowded market and it's hard to push through, but the people that do and do it really well love it, get huge autonomy and quite often make a lot of money. So mm. there are two, two main options. So uh, adelepark.com, uh, her website is in the comment section of, of this, this podcast. You okay. guys can go there, not only uh, get her free tips, which is kind of her to offer, you can also pre-order her book and, um, and share your views uh, on her book. She loves that by the sounds of it. Good or bad, email her anytime uh, and share. Indeed, so- all my, I'm on all the things like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and, I, and it's only me. I don't have a PA. Anybody who emails me or contacts me, I'm the person who answers. I might not answer straight away because it depends on workload, but I, I will take time to answer anybody with any questions that they're desperate in. Well, I am so grateful that you've given your time to my entrepreneurial community and shared your insight and story. I absolutely love it. I am definitely buying the book. In fact, I might buy two. And so (laughs) thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I know how busy you are as well with the launch of the new book. So you're giving us time like this. So kind of you. I've loved talking to you. Likewise. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real honor to talk to you. And I'll uh, I'll look forward to catching up with you again. I'll uh, I'll throw the questions over to you from the audience. Maybe we'll do another session another time and and answer those questions when, when you've got time again. Wonderful. Look forward to it. Thank you so much and good luck with the launch. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Good Luck Club podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to and you've chosen us. We, of course, feel lucky. If you want to hear more, please go to thegoodluckpod.com or go to any of our social media pages and share with us your views, your insights and any way that we can improve what we're doing to make it a better experience for you. We wish you the best of luck.